The third class in Brother Mark's series on the God of all comfort is entitled Comfort in Abuse and Retribution in the Kingdom. Brother Mark. Brothers and sisters, thank you for bearing with me through this somewhat of a roller coaster ride of emotions and, and uh, joys in the future. It's going to get a little bit darker now for this one, um, but it's important because of the um, pervasive uh, factor of this particular problem. It's the kind of, we're speaking now about comfort in abuse and the recompense uh, for it in the kingdom. And abuse is one of those kinds of things that doesn't really hit you until you come face to face with it and then it becomes a penetrating nightmare, um, a consuming horror. I'm saying this from direct personal experience uh, with another sister in our ecclesia one that I grew up with, knew all her life, and had no idea what was going on in the background of, of her life. But it's important because, like I said, it's a pervasive problem. But it's also a problem that, that God is very much aware of. And his recompense in the kingdom is going to cover abuse at all levels. And when you think about it, there are despotic rulers of nations who are abusive to, the, to all the peoples in, in their uh, regime. So, abuse starts at a very high level in the spiritual hosts of wickedness in high places in the world and works its way all the way down into uh, homes where horrible things are done and people are helplessly bound to their own personal nightmare. Abuse is the nine million pound gorilla in the world. Really, that's very hard to see, but it is there. So, because of what this sister went through, and because I know statistically and factually the level of pervasiveness of this problem, I felt that it was important to bring this segment to Ecclesias because in the Norfolk Ecclesia, we had to do something about it. And we'll go over that when we get into our uh, remarks here. Abuses, I just want to show you the scope of the problem in the world. Um, it's domestic in, in abuse is known as the invisible crime. Um, it involves child exploitation, which professionals in the field regard as emotional homicide. In other words, it destroys someone emotionally. Um, the problem is so pervasive that you either know someone who is suffering from abuse or you have known someone, or you yourself are suffering from abuse, or you may even be hiding abuse, uh, covering it unwillingly or willingly covering it. But in any case, it's pervasive enough for all of us to have come into contact, unless you're very young and just haven't yet, uh, with someone who is being abused or has been abused. The British, a British Prime Survey said that abuse affects one in four women and one in six men. 30, there's an average of 35 assaults against a victim before they call the police. And this can take place over years of time. These statistics are kind of horrifying just to consider. As many as 70% of homeless women report domestic abuse. We've already spoken about it in Sister Dawn's life, but she's not the, the case that we'll present in the testimony today or right now. It's generational. And abused children themselves grow up to be abusers. In child exploitation, the statistics are now one in three girls and one in five boys are explo exploited before they are 18. And the Me Too movement is evidence of this, the, the problems with the Olympics, the problems in colleges, um, that used to be a problem in day school centers, in particular the problem in the um, hierarchy of the Catholic Church and its cover-up of abuse. Um, all of those things affect these statistics. So this is common knowledge in the news these days in our lives. So I don't have to kind of impress you with the legitimacy of this statistic. 90% of the victims know the perpetrator in some way, and 68% of the perpetrators are in the family. 
95% of the people who are abusers use churches or ecclesias as covers. 2.9 million cases were reported, are reported in the U.S. every year. We're going to talk a little bit about reporting because not reporting is almost as much a problem as the abuse itself. One perpetrator can have as many as 300 victims in a lifetime. We kind of have a sense of that in the news. These are things we don't want to think about. So we're going to put all this into a scriptural context and think about it in, in, from the vantage of God's perspective uh, because there's always an advantage in God's perspective. We know a sister who suffered from decades, literally from decades of unrelenting abuse. And she's not the only one in Ecclesia. I was shocked one time. There was an old, this is just an example as an aside. There was an old, older sister who had been widowed for many years in her life. She lived to be, I think, 100 years old. But sometime around the time she was in her late 70s or 80s, uh, she got upset over something that had happened. It was not relevant to anything that we would we would need to speak about here. But she told me uh, in 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 the emotion of the moment, she said, "I was on the floor on my hands and knees, and my husband had a gun to my head. So don't don't tell me about that." And uh, and when you hear someone say something like that, you don't appreciate really what they must have actually gone through when that happened in a situation like that. Um, so speaking now that was just an aside speaking of the, the sister whose testimony is in this part she went through decades of unrelenting abuse and we didn't know about it we used to say that she was only happy if she's miserable and we had no idea what was making her so miserable had no idea until her husband moved into our ecclesia as a baptized member and spent eight years there using the ecclesia as a cover for his abuse. And because he was in our ecclesia, because Christadelphians are so close-knit, uh, we kind of found out about this in, 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 in somewhere around the fifth year. And for the next three years, tried to work with it. Uh, we had been working with their marriage in all kinds of different ways for the whole eight-year period he was in there. Came in in a marital crisis and left in a marital crisis. Um, but it was a, a, a really prevailing problem and it... It, it consumed practically the entire ecclesia, uh, particularly consumed um, our lives on the arranging board and Sister Jean and I as we got closer and closer to this family and discovered more and more and more about what was under the surface uh, being glossed over with the guise of spiritual spirituality. This is a brief description. I have much more. There's much more actually on the website that you can go and read uh, everything she, that you, you might want to. It, it would be a value to you if you wanted to identify the kinds of things that people are going through because you have a suspicion that something's going on in someone's life that you know. Otherwise, you probably don't want to read any, anything about this. But this is what she says about her terror and her exhaustion. My body is really giving out. It's a simple statement, but it's not an understatement. In her case, it's getting harder for me even to work, though I know that I have to. What her husband had done to her, among many other things, and her children, is he had consigned her to a life of uh, work where he wouldn't pay the bills because he knew that if he forced her to work as a cleaning person in people's homes, that she would bring enough income home to defray the burden that he otherwise would have to spend his money on. He kept his money in the, in the dark, in the background. Um, and just consigned her to a life of, uh, enslaved her to hard labor. Uh, my physical body may not be able to handle it right now. If the work comes, I will certainly do it somehow. All these years of abuse affected me mentally, but now is affecting me physically. The stress is just making me feel so very drained. This evil man has got to be stopped before he kills me and my kids. That's the part that's highlighted in this section because everyone in his family thought that he would eventually kill them. So the other, uh, among the other things that he did was he suspended the family in uh, constant fear of physical harm. He never really followed through with it, but every, he made everyone in the family certain that he was capable of it and all but promised it by his behavior and his tone and the things he would say to people. Uh, he also had a collection of guns, so that made it all the more believable. 
So this raises a question. I'm not going to go too far into what she suffered. Maybe that's sufficient to say. It was decades of time. We got very close to it. It, it overwhelmed our lives in, in trying to extricate her from this condition. Uh, but then we started thinking about all the factors that are involved. Some of them are practical. Uh, many of them are scriptural. And some of them are ecclesial. So I'm going to go through uh, a series of uh, components in this particular part that will deal with each of those considerations. And the first big question is, with women who suffer from abusive husbands, and the focus here is on men who are abusive. There are women these days that are just as abusive, but this particular segment is on how abusive are men. And so the question is, why do women stay with a man who's abusive? And we go down this list, you'll see why they do, and how this could even fit into the matrix of a Christadelphian ecclesia. Because the threats to harm the victims or the loved ones or the pets, in this case there was a pet, and the threat was always there to harm any of these, are so real that the family, the woman, is literally suspended in fear. She's frozen. She can't do anything because she knows if she does, someone else is going to pay the price. So it's sort of like uh, the kids and the pets become hostages for, his, uh, for her, her secrecy. There are threats of suicide or attempts. So if there's a threat of suicide, you don't want to kill somebody who's, who's abusive to you, uh, who says he'll kill himself if you tell. So you know, there's, it's, it gets into a very confused set of emotions and feelings. Uh, they, be, they believe that the abuser will actually take their children from them. And if you're a mother, your children are the most important thing in your life as a mother. And the thought of someone, especially an abuser, taking them from you and subjecting them to his full control um, is unimaginable to a woman. And so this uh, restrains her. There are religious reasons. And think of how this would play out in, in ecclesial life and the truth. If We know that God said he hates divorce. And if the only way you can extricate yourself from an abusive condition is to divorce them uh, or to separate, sometimes these things will bother the religious side of your conscience. Believing the abuser will change as promised but never kept. And this is a constant theme with, people, with men who are abusive. They promise change. They come back to you with tears. They're sorry. But it happens over and over again. How many movies, how many stories, how many magazine articles point this out? This is classic. Um, there's self-blame. And this is something that uh, this particular sister had uh, grown in, up in, in her family where over these three decades from her early youth to the time um, this was finally finally ended for her. Um, she blamed herself because the abuse involved mental and emotional accusation that was so pervasive in her mind it literally brain, it, it brainwashed her into believing that she was the reason um, that he had to treat her that way. So self-blame keeps women from leaving. Uh, they have limited financial options. This is certainly true in the case in our ecclesia. Um, she couldn't really, she never really thought she could support herself. She'd make enough money in a month to pay the mortgage while he used that money for his own escapades elsewhere. Believing that violence or conflict is normal. What happens in some of these families is the violence is so constant and pervasive in the family that it becomes normal for them. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine those of us who live in peaceful lives where the characters are, are driven by spiritual principles to imagine something getting this bad inside a home. But you can imagine if it's as pervasive as, as the t statistics show um, how, how, what grief there is in heaven in, in the purview of all the households in America say nothing of the countries and vicinities where there's abuse on a higher level. Uh, where the God of love watches this miserable torture, merciless torture inside homes. Believing in the sanctity of marriage and the family also is another reason why women stay. Um, they have limited or no housing options um, and housing options that are provided by the city or the state don't seem to be adequate. Um, a lot of times they can, they can find other reasons to explain the abuse. They blame it on something else or alcohol or finances. Um, they have a very low self-esteem. That's usually the kind of woman that ends up in an abusive situation. The fear of the unknown or change is enormous because change in, all change involves loss, someone once said. Uh, so they can see them losing everything in their life, in their, in their accumulated surroundings and the props of their life and 
uh, the little things in their life that have um, that are representations of deeper meanings all that appears to be um, lost in the change uh, or a fear of isolation they don't know what will happen if, if they live in a strict ecclesia and um, a divorce results in some form of isolation there's that fear um, there's a fear of being isolated simply by the circumstance embarrassment and shame is another reason women don't leave believing no one can help and this is a very deep seated belief because they've lived in it for so long there never has been any help they become convinced that help is not available uh, there are cultural beliefs there's denial there's pressure from friends and family to stay there's economic dependence and there's also this very strange irony that she she still loves him she feels like she loves him even though he treats her like this a very pervasive condition in the pity of these women's lives. So in this particular sister's case, the only way she could cope is in the comfort that was provided to her from her faith. And there are many different ways in which that comfort came to her. She would listen to tapes of Christadelphian talks. So if you're a speaker and you speak about these things, and there's a woman out there who's suffering like this, and she picks up your talk, that will come into her life as a comfort. She's very close to her Bible and did an amazing job of raising her children in spite of these circumstances and stayed very, very close to um, the scriptures and, and they came into her minds and constructed an anchor of comfort. Uh, the Ecclesia was another form of comfort. She, she, she came assiduously every Sunday. She came to as many classes as she could get out to, not too many in that case. Uh, but the exhortations and the, uh, the sympathies and the hugs and kisses and the arms around her all provided her with some measure of comfort that comes from the hand of Christ as it treats those whom he touches through um, the contact with brothers and sisters. This is what she said in all of that. I've been in the truth since I was 15 years old, but I've never really seen and felt, felt it until the worst adversity in my life. And this is that wonderful paradox that we're speaking about um, in this whole series of comfort being manifested in affliction as a result of and in contrast to affliction. So she says, once I put complete trust in God, you know, there was no, <laughs> the arm of flesh had failed her for sure, um, and gave him the steering wheel of my life, then and only then could I have peace within. So how in this circumstance... And she'd been desperate almost as long as we've known her. How could she find peace within unless you can actually use the knowledge of God instead of the knowledge of good and evil, which was the prevalent knowledge of her life. Use the knowledge of God to bring that peace into your thinking. That then becomes the source of comfort and peace. I know that God knows where we were going and how to get there. This adversity has been too hard for me uh, to physically, mentally, and spiritually handle alone, and that is not an understatement in every uh, aspect of what she's describing there. Physical, mental, spiritual, she could have added emotional. It's been too difficult for her to manage alone. So she, but she wasn't alone. She had, she had a, a group of believers who were around who were gradually becoming more and more aware of this and who were supplying the kind of support she needed and friends. She had friends who were themselves wives of abusive conditions in their marriage and they came to her rescue uh, once I completely gave him that is God the wheel then so many blessings started to happen um, two years later when I updated this last fall she said the storms are settling down now this is because the scoffer was driven out of the ecclesia you know there's a we're going to see this later on in a verse drive uh, a, a scoffer out and abuse will cease um, we drove him out of the Ecclesia and um, by effect she drove him out of, or circumstances drove him away from her, which gave her a bit of a rescue. The storms, so she says, the storms are settling now. And um, in the most wonderful way, uh, one, she was a cleaning lady for these people and um, they had a house available because uh, the woman that was, was getting old and who she cared for in her cleaning could no longer sustain herself, manage her own life in her house alone. So uh, this, the daughter and son brought her in. They happened to be very loving, kind, religious people, and they had mercy on this woman, gave her a place to live, her and her daughter. So it was a deliverance that was supplied. We saw this. It was supplied by the Lord. 
through the Spirit as it operated in the minds of um, several people who weren't even in the truth. But so penetrating was the Spirit of Christ in this world that he had enough of an effect on their hearts to provide a place for this woman to live in. It's actually a, a bit nicer than the place she was living in uh, that she had to leave. So she says, the storms have been extremely heavy, but they've taught me and my family to truly rely totally and completely on God. They've taught us to be patient no matter what. They've taught me to pray like I've never prayed before. Truly, I'm so very blessed and thankful for our God that has never, ever left my side through these heavy storms, but instead been with me and with his arms around me and my family the entire time. How could a woman conjure that kind of thought unless she understood it to be true in her life? And that is in every side that God gives us providentially and all the anchors of strength that he provides by his word. Don't ever give up, but keep trusting, believing and pray without ceasing. God loves us all so much and he will guide you through every storm you are going through now and in the future. So when I asked her, what is the verse that anchors your hope? She said this. And we know that all things, imagine this, what are all things in her life? getting threatened with violence, being yelled at, being denigrated, being belittled to the point where you feel worthless, scaring your children to believe that it's normal for them to expect to be killed, to be murdered. Um, these are all the things that she said work together for good. For good. What good? Good in the form of the direct, intimate knowledge of the hope that God sets before us. That's the good. It's in the strength to endure who love God and, and those who are called according to his purpose. So God's response in a condition like this, in, a, in an abusive condition, is, is general and sweeps the entire human race and all of its um, dispensations. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And once again, what does God do? He ties it to the promise of Abraham, the promise of Lamb the promised land, the throne of Christ, and to that area of land which will be the capital of this world and his kingdom. So I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. It's not very clear about the comfort he offers. It's a comfort that he will provide when he redeems Jerusalem, and when Jerusalem is redeemed, the world will be redeemed. So in all this experience, the Norfolk Ecclesia uh, came up with a policy. And the reason we came up with a policy is what I mentioned earlier, reporting is part of the problem. And it's a serious part of the problem, not reporting. That's why people are arrested and they go to jail for not reporting. That's the issue they have with the Catholic Church right now, that they don't think there's been enough reporting going on, and so the abuse gets, to con gets uh, continued. In Virginia, there's only three states left. At the time we, we looked into this, I think there were four states. But I've recently been told that there are three states left now that do not have a uh, law that mandates church leaders and elders to report when they, they have reasonable suspicion of abuse. That's a very serious problem. You can know why it's a law in so many states. Um, Virginia, the state that we live in, does not have a law that mandates church leaders. So uh, we spoke to a lot of people about this in the course of our involvement with it, and we were told it would be a good idea for you to develop a policy since you live in a state where it's not mandated by law develop a policy where the, the church mandates itself, its own leaders, to report when there is reasonable, reasonable suspicion of abuse. Uh, it's this serious in God's eyes. Whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This is the kind of offense that abuse is. When there's a selfish father and a, and a dominant narcissistic man in the family, it's a millstone-level offense, what he does to the children. If that man is a brother, and he's not being reported. This needs to be uncovered and dealt with. And the Ecclesia's, not the Ecclesia's role to do it, but it is the Ecclesia's role to report it. If you can do something about it within, without going to um, the judges of the world, then Paul's advice is to do that, because he says to the Corinthian Ecclesia, you need to judge these things internally. But where you can't do that, it's necessary to report. So we developed a policy, and I'm going to introduce some aspects of the policy. It's, it's a little big, so we don't have time to do it in the confines of this part. 
Um, but this is an, is, was entitled, the Norfolk Ecclesia policy was passed in a special meeting on family services pertaining to abuse and exploitation. I'm just to read the first paragraph of it so you can get an idea of what this policy does. I'm just going to say up front, this policy is available um, on the internet for you to copy and download in your Ecclesia if you feel like you'd like to take the step. If you, if you have dealt with this in the past, and know you may deal with it in the future, you can download this and use this as a, um, a template for whatever policy you want to write. And we did it deliberately with that in mind, not only just for the benefit of our uh, affairs in the Ecclesia. Why the Ecclesia needs a policy on this subject? The creation of this policy stems from ha our having officially opened a counseling service for the Norfolk Ecclesia, in which our members are financially supported to receive qualified counseling for a specific period of time where their trials are beyond the scope and ability of our own members to provide sufficient resources for help. In, other, in any other case, we've got all the re resources that we have in ecclesial life that we have as individuals in the particulars in that uh, ecclesia, but there's a limit, and this is when that limit is exceeded. We acknowledge that brothers and sisters are subject to the same proclivity to sin as all mankind, and provisions should be made to aid victims of abuse and exploitation, recognizing that this abuse could come from outside or from within the body. And I don't need to go far past that point to remind you that we know of cases where this is in the body. Um, this is an overview, and I'm just going to bolt these off. It has an introduction. It defines abuse, obviously. It has gives a list of relevant scriptures. It shows what the state's laws are, including signs and reporting. And um, I'm going to add right here, all this is meant to have a practical basis of dealing with this when it is otherwise so, so sort of unreachable especially in the protection of the sanctity of a family and a family organization. We have a victim first priority. I would love to talk to you about that. And if you want to know what that means, um, we'll, we can take that up in a later conversation. Uh, reasonable suspicion is as opposed to proof. We, we need to explain what that is because a lot of people think that if you have a suspicion, you can't use it because we're not supposed to be, you know, scripturally speaking, we're not supposed to be suspicious of one another. But reasonable suspicion is a different, suspicion is a different thing. It's when there are all kinds of things that are wrong. You know something's wrong. These are the signs that something's wrong, but you have no proof. What's required in state reporting is not proof. The state then looks for the evidence and seeks the proof. What they go, what they go by is reasonable suspicion, and nobody is indicted on the basis of suspicion. So all this does is set up a condition in which people who have the authority to do so can probe deeply into a family's life and discover if there is, in fact, abuse. Um, there's a consequence to fellowship, obviously, so we put that in there. Um, there's a need to, to protect people with whatever confidentiality may be involved. And that's on the principle in the Bible of covering and, and uh, on one hand covering sin, on the other hand exposing sin. So we do both in ecclesial life. If you're, uh, you've been on the arranging board, you know the need to cover sins when, when, they, when you become aware of them. And you know the need sometimes to bring those sins into some kind of public awareness. And although we don't like to be judges and we don't want to be involved in that, we all recognize that we are in training in ecclesial life for a time when we be judges worldwide helping Christ rule from his throne, but being in all parts of the world in situations where the experience I think we had in principles of judgment will be applied in that day, but perfectly applied by those of us who are uh, brought into the royal administration of Christ's throne. Practical restoration and evidence of change um, are two things that um, become very involved in this if there's repentance gets involved and fellowship is a question. Uh, I wanna, um, there are five steps that we developed in this that uh, show repentance, that become evidence of real repentance instead of just having somebody with loud crying and tears like Esau um, make a, a repentance that leads to death instead of one that leads to life because they don't mean it. That's the repentance of Esau and the tears of Esau and you'll see lots of tears with these sorts of perpetrators. Um, but what we had to do was figure out how we can identify what real repentance is. And this doesn't only involve abuse. It involves everything where a question of repentance needs to be um, determined, answered. And uh, I'm gonna, so I'm going to take some, uh, just a few minutes and go over that with you. So these are the two things that we're going to look at directly. Uh, relevant scriptures relating to um, 
abuse and reporting abuse and the exposure of it, and five steps that identify real repentance. This is a very useful tool for arranging boards and for anyone, women who are older women who are counseling younger people, parents who are counseling children. If you want to really identify real repentance, this is how you do it. So we'll take a look at that closely. First, see the relevant scriptures. Um, It's interesting to note that when Paul lists in Galatians 5 the works of the flesh, um, many of them, if not half of them, relate to abuse. When you think about it, adultery, so there can be unfaithfulness that results in abuse, or there can be rampant repeat adultery because that, that is concomitant with abuse. Uncleanness in all forms, the part of a selfish man. Lasciviousness, which is, of course, what happens when a man uh, begins to be hostile to uh, the object of his affections, that wife that he promised to love and honor and cherish all the days of their life. Um, Lasciviousness turns that love into hatred, and he can be very cruel to the one he promised to love. Uh, Variance, which is constant disagreement and contention. You know that the Bible says women can be contentious, so men can be abused by women in families where contention is the problem. And contention is a form of abuse. Um, the Bible word for that in some cases in the New Testament is the old, older word is variance. And variance just means uh, a variance of view that turns into an argument. Variance and emulation go hand in hand. I'm not going to get into that right now. That's the next term, but wrath and strife. Uh, the strife is basically an effect of the wrath and um, and then murders and drunkenness and re- revelings are also all a part of a global condition of of abuse in a family, and such the like of which I tell of which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So the goal, if a, an abuser in an ecclesia is discovered, is to bring him to a state of, of restoration. This is in the context of restoring somebody who was given over to fleshly impulses. And sometimes abusers can be restored. So the goal is that, but if they can't, you have to drive an abuser from you because it's only then that the abuse will cease. And we all know this subtle, delicate distinction in judgment that uh, that we labor so hard to get right and the demands of righteousness when we feel so unrighteousness in the context of those, de- unrighteous in the context of those demands. He goes on to say that the fruit of the Spirit, and this is where you find out what completely dispels the the potential for abuse in a family. You marry a woman, she should be a sacred thing to you. You've received the approval of the Lord for taking her into your care. You promise to love and honor and cherish her all the days of her life. And then you should, as her spiritual head, bring into your relationship with her and into the family, you should bring love and joy and peace. You should be a, a, the person who has his hand on the thermostat that controls the temperature in the room. When it's too hot, you cool it, and when it's too cool, you warm it up. And it, it supplies the peace that makes everybody in the family feel secure instead of scared to death that something bad is going to happen soon. Um, and long-suffering, which means there's a lot of patience involved, and gentleness, which means not being heavy-handed and harsh with people, and not speaking harshly to children, and not denigrating the one you love with hard words and, and hurtful terms. Gentleness is all, all, all pervasive in disposition and tone and speech, and all of us need to, to learn how to do this because it doesn't come naturally to us. When we get baptized, we don't automatically become gentle. And men are not gentle just because they turn from boys into adults. We have to learn how to be gentle because otherwise we have a lot of force in our character. And when we apply that force to a woman, it can be overexerted just like that. And so gentleness is the thing which we learn that offsets all that. And goodness. There should be goodness in the home. The father should bring goodness to his wife and to his children. And faith and meekness. And temperance, he should be able to admit it when he's wrong and not insist that he's always right and not, not act like he, he there's, there's never anything wrong with his thinking or always be right in his own eyes. All these things are fleshly impulses that destroy marriages, that, 
that are the, the components of abuse. So, brothers, I know you agree with all this, and I know you would like to practice it, and I know many of you probably do in some measure. But the exhortation is always there for all of us to, to temper the flesh, to, to put the reins on ourselves, and, and treat the, the, the beauty of the love that our wife offers us and the self-sacrifice that she brings into the marriage. Treat that with the utmost of care. It's sacred. God gave it to you as a gift because he knew it wasn't good for you to be alone. Treat her like you really mean these things. And if, if you need to get better at it, then do everything in your power to make yourself better at it. And if that doesn't work, apologize at least. But don't make apology the, the thing that the pattern that rules the day. Change is the thing that needs to be made in, in this context. He says, against such, there is no law. And these are the components of a happy family that is absent of abuse. With the fruit of the Spirit, it obviates abuse. That's the first scripture. Another scripture is auxiliary counsel is actually scripturally justified. As Christadelphians, we have no confidence in the wisdom of this world. But there are certain areas where this world applies its wisdom to things that we kind of also can't control. So in Proverbs 11.14, he says, Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. There may be a multitude of counselors in your ecclesia, there may be a multitude of counselors in a consortium of ecclesias in your region, and you may not have enough counsel among brothers to solve the problem at hand. So you have to find a counselor who does have enough experience and who will not um, go against what you believe. So there's a, a big conversation up front that says, this is what we believe. We don't want any counsel to counteract this. We won't, don't want the wrong kind of advice, and you have to be specific with the counselor. When he agrees and he says, well, we would never do this, we'll support what you believe then you have a counselor you can work with, especially if he sees him and he understands the problem. So that's auxiliary counsel on the basis of that principle. And then there's another verse that, that kind of says that exposure of abuse is, is justified. It's in Ephesians 5. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Oh, I've seen a case where a brother actually took part in the unfruitful works of darkness by supporting and defending the abusive brother. And he thought he was the Christ image in this, but instead he was he was actually taking part in his unfruitful works. He was defending him in every regard, had no confidence in anything we were trying to do, and just counteracted everything we did. He was a brother, and he thought he was behaving like Christ. But I, I'm not going to analyze why this happened in his mind, but he actually did this. So I'm saying it's possible that's the way it happens. You become sort of self-deceived in a savior image and you don't really apply what needs to be applied to the problem. Um, instead, it says, expose them, for it is a shame even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. And it's a very painful thing to expose these unfruitful works. But when you do, the pain is like surgery. You go through a period where it really hurts in order to get well. The healing follows uh, the, the remedy, and the remedy can frequently be involved with very painful conditions. There's another aspect of this, and that's obedience to the laws of the land. So in your state, let's say in Pennsylvania, I think it must be in Pennsylvania, that reporting is mandated to church elders, then um, it's important for uh, ecclesial use of state law, uh, and it becomes necessary in the context of these scriptures. Declare these things and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Remind them to be submissive to the rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for any honest work. And what we are talking about when we expose abuse is we're using an honest work to uncover a very dishonest one, a very deceptive, dark, hidden, dishonest work. So to counteract that with honesty, and I've been told there's a brother in California who is a uh, director of a, uh, of a counseling center, and we had lots of conversations with him along the way, and he said, you know, when a family is used to hiding everything, and they live kind of in the shadows of, of covering cover-up, uh, nobody will admit anything to themselves or anybody else, and they, they're used to, to, to basically lying about families' conditions at home. He said to take that family and... and 
start operating on a level where the truth is out on the table, he said, is an extraordinarily painful experience for a family, and many of them don't survive it. It's so painful to work with truth when you're used to covering it up with uh, deception. Not willingly, but as a necessity, if, if that's the case. Um, then there's judgment against lawbreakers in Scripture. In Romans 13, Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God, especially, I think, child protective services must have been instituted by God to protect their children wherever this can be done because they become a threat to evildoers. So he says, therefore, he who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So this is a principle that even sounds a little bit stronger in defense of going to authorities and seeing if you can do whatever it takes to stop this problem, because it kills children emotionally and can result actually in worse things than that. So that's the scriptural basis for our having a policy on it. I'm going to turn your attention to evidence of change because that's the big question when you're looking for repentance. And if you need to repent, then this will also help you understand what it is that actually applies to repentance. So you see the practicality of this when we look at the list. There are five steps in repentance that provide evidence of a change of heart. That's what repentance means, that there's been a change of heart. The big question is, if somebody's crying like Esau... And they have these great tears, but they, they really don't mean it. How can you differentiate between somebody that's begging for forgiveness and appealing to all the grace of the cross, but remain unrepentant as compared to someone who's begging for forgiveness with all the same tears, but they are willing to follow a process that proves that their repentance is genuine? That's what we're looking at here. So step one is they have to be able to say what they did was that was wrong. It's that simple. This is what I did that was wrong. A person who's not repentant has a very hard time finding in his heart what he did that was wrong. He's always justifying himself. If he's narcissistic, he can't do anything wrong. He's right in his own eyes. He never did anything wrong. So this is critical to understand. What I did was wrong. If somebody is honest about that, but you cannot tell them what they did that was wrong, and then have them say, well, I'm so sorry about that, because they, that doesn't prove anything. You just let them know what they're supposed to say. They have to do the work of their own repentance. So you ask them, let us know when you understand what you did that was wrong. You don't tell them. You don't give them any hints because a clever person, you know how human nature works. Give them the slightest little hint, they'll reflect that right back to you and say, well, this is what I did that was wrong. So you don't want to tell them. You want them to discover it themselves. Then they should say why it was bad for them. What they did was wrong was bad for them. They should also say correspondingly why it was bad for the person they hurt. If they can't do that, a person who's narcissistic, has a mental disorder, or right in his own eyes, or is, is given over to his, proud, his pride, he doesn't know why it was bad for him, and he couldn't possibly say why it was bad for somebody else, because he thinks what he did was good for them, and what they did was bad for him. It's what they did was bad for him, not other way around, what I did was bad for the person I hurt. So they're all confused. They can't, they can't come up with this unless it's genuine. If they're genuine, you'll hear straight answers to these questions. Step four, what I will do to ensure that it will never happen again. I know one example that was given to us was uh, a man who was in this process had to promise that he couldn't go within five miles of the oceanfront. As he got near anyone, had a bathing, any woman that had a bathing suit on, he'd be tempted to his problem. I don't, we don't, never did find out what that was. But he could, his promise was he would stay outside. We know another family where there was abuse uh, or a condition that needed, needed changing and they, the whole family had to get rid of their phones. Nobody in the family could have a phone in the house. It was a problem they were trying to solve and that's what they did to ensure that the problem, that was, in this case it was the loss of a little girl, would never happen again. They didn't lose her. They saved her. But to prevent that from ever being a threat again, they had to get rid of their phones. So you think, if you're serious about something, about solving a problem, you'd be willing to apply the simple things that are required in this list. And the last one is, what I will do to make restitution to the person I hurt. Um, I think Esau did that with Jacob. I think he made restitution to Jacob when Jacob came back and they, they hugged and they shared livestock together. And uh, it didn't turn Esau's heart, but he did repent of his intent to kill his brother in his anger. 
So once again, if you want to download the ecclesial abuse policy, this will be in the PDF file that you can download from your website, or you can remember this, mintdesign.com slash comfort. Uh, you will see the, the abuse policy, and if you'd like to use that as a template in your ecclesia to extend the influence of what we're talking about here uh, beyond today, then you're welcome to do so. Um, in scriptures, there's this problem of abuse is identified, for example, in... Um, in Abigail's relationship with Nabal. Nabal's described as, a, as an insufferable fool. Um, David was going to kill him, and Abigail saved his life. But this is the description of, of him. I think we would all probably agree he was probably abusive. The man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. The woman was intelligent and beautiful, but the man, a Calebite, was harsh and evil in his dealings. He is such a worthless fool, nobody can talk to him. And that sounds to me like he was right in his own eyes. He was probably narcissistic. Um, so this was Nabal, and yet, and yet, what's the power of, of spiritual things? How does it take everything and become unnatural uh, to what is fleshly and, and turn it around and say, but there may be hope here. This is what she did. She tried to save his life. And God ended up judging him on the spot then, but... She, his wife was so wonderful, she tried to save it and certainly won the king's favor. She had no guile. This is a point about guile and guilelessness. There are a lot of women that are kind of guileless or helpless. Um, that makes sheep vulnerable. So those of us who are humble before God and humble before men have a certain level of vulnerability. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want to tell you that Dr. Thomas was such an one. He was a little sheep in his own right, too. And uh, he entrusted the sale of his property twice in his life. Once a house, a very nice house in Richmond, and another a big farm in, uh, around Chicago to, the, to, to, to an agent to sell for him. And in both cases, the agent sold the house and absconded with the funds. He bought a house, entrusted an agent to sell it, and lost the entire uh, value of his property because the agent stole the funds right out from under him. So you tell me that isn't a vulnerable, a meek and spirit that turns vulnerable to a devious mind. Even Dr. Tons, with all that strength. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, says David, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, and your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So being vulnerable sheep, how does God's rod and his staff comfort us. The rod is there. It's a, it's a device that shepherds use for protection and guidance. They can beat away uh, a wolf or a hostile animal. Um, they guide the sheep with it. So protection and guidance are two of the things that we, we get from life and the truth, from our high priest and from God's word. The staff is for rescue and correction. So protection and guidance, rescue and correction are the things that a good shepherd, and we are in the care in this fold of a very good shepherd. Those are the things that we get from him. The way this, the little crook works, I don't know if you ever knew this, but it's just big enough to fit around the hoof of a sheep. And if a sheep gets caught in a thicket, a shepherd can grab a sheep with, with his the hook around the sheep's uh, hoof and, and pull him out and rescue him from uh, getting stuck. And I think sheep probably get stuck a lot. My impression is... De Brother Des, Des, Des uh, Manser told us that sheep are so dumb that they will die in sight of water rather than go and taking a drink. A shepherd has to call them to the water and, and get them to drink, lead them to water and make them drink because they are otherwise so innocent and vulnerable that they will die in sight of water rather than drinking it on their own. So sheep need shepherds and we are supposed to be sheep-like. That doesn't mean we're dumb. It means that we need to be led and rescued and protected um, and corrected by our shepherd. So protection and rescue comfort sheep when they are helpless. And that's why Jesus said, pray this, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. This is something Solomon said about the oppressed and vulnerability of abuse according to Solomon. Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. And Jesus was oppressed like this. He was abused by the Pharisees and the people who hated him, the people who despised his, his assumption of authority. 
what they thought was an assumption, a wrongful assumption of authority. And um, it says of him, I looked for pity and found none. He was abused and he couldn't find any pity. Making true what Solomon observes here. Justice pleads for correction. So we love justice along with Christ. He's, he's the purveyor of justice. And, and this verse says, Isaiah says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight, stop doing evil, learn to do what is good, seek justice, correct the oppressor. God may work with both. You remember he worked with another abuser and actually put him into prominence in ecclesial life. He took the apostle Paul who was murdering his brethren and he caught him up short. He changed his heart and he turned him from an abuser into the man who set the world on fire with the light of Christ. So there is hope for both. God may work with both. The poor and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. So there's also a, a balancing cue in this whole message that says, if there's any way we can, let's go to work to see if we can turn an abuser's heart into a, a loving heart. David foreshadows Christ's abuse when he says, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Remember, Lord, the ridicule against your servants. In my heart, I carry abuse from all peoples. How your enemies have ridiculed, Lord, and how they have ridiculed every step of your anointed. May the Lord be praised forever. And this is, is, is what happened to, to, to David. He speaks of it, I think, prophetically of Christ, saying of both of them, they carried abuse in their heart. And if you come across it in your life, you will also carry it in your heart. And um, you will be ridiculed. Solomon's advice about abuse, and we mentioned this earlier, is drive out a scoffer and strife will go out and quarreling and abuse will cease. Whoever corrects a scoffer will get himself abuse, and he who reputes a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. The balance on that is that when we were working with this abusive family, Gene and I put a deadbolt lock on the door every time we went in the house. And we knew that if this man came to the door, I told Gene, don't ever open it. He's dangerous. I was in court one day and I told the clerk, I said, if I get murdered, this is the guy that did it. I was, I was vulnerable to this whole thing. And that's what Solomon's talking about. You're gonna, you correct a scoffer, you're at risk. Paul addresses separation and abuse. It's another thing that occurs where somebody needs to, to, to a woman needs relief. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. When there's no peace at home, it, you, you have Paul's opinion that it's okay to separate with the view of restoration, of reconciliation. And if separation is the only way you can breathe at night to go to sleep, then it becomes an essential part of healing. Then in the end, once again, there's the side of what will happen in the kingdom. Now, this is a message I'm going to take the time to make. I know we're getting a little bit long here. It's been a long day. Three in a row for me and three in a row for you. <laughs> Same three in a row. Um, but this is so important that I, I could end here, but I'm not going to, because this is an aspect of God's judgments in the kingdom that are critically important, and it's a message that comes to us from Malachi to fathers. It's a message to fathers. So if this was a verse, it would say, instead of saying coastlands, listen up, what we're saying here is fathers, listen up. If you're not a father yet, you still need to listen because you may be one day message for husbands and fires. God's judgments are spoken of in two senses, fire and light. The light is what led the Jews to the wilderness. The fire is what consumed the animal, animal flesh. So these are both aspects of God's protection and his judgment against flesh. This is how God will deal with abusers who tortured his beloved and his little ones in the kingdom. There's fire and there's light. The fire, said Malachi, is going to burn up the wicked, they'll be like stubble. The light will heal the faithful. So these are, are God's judgments operating on those who have tortured and those who were tortured. Both are his recompense. In other words, the payback. He says of fire, behold the day comes that will burn as an oven and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble. This is what you have to look forward to. If you knew the truth, 
you, you, you were responsible for your knowledge and you thought that you could escape God's judgments. The wicked, you'll be among those who he turns to stubble and the day that comes will burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor, jant, nor branch. And there is comfort in this. We'll see tomorrow there's comfort in this for people who have suffered at the hand of this abuse. On the other hand, he says he's going to burn the wicked up on one hand. So those are like calves that are held in a stall for a sacrifice and then cut up and burned with fire. And if it's a bull, it's totally good. If you're a man like a bull, then there was a plenty message of that in the law and the sacrifices because the bull was totally consumed. It was bull flesh and it was consumed. So much for bullies. But then on the other hand, he says, but unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings and you shall go forth and grow up as calves from the stall. So there's two animals here. One set of animals are burned up by God's judgments and the others go and dance in the morning. So glad to be out and freed from the stall. They're no longer bound up by, even by a stall. There, there's no judgment in store for them. They dance. I don't know if you've ever seen little calves dance, but it's just the sweetest little thing. They kick their legs up, they jump up and down, they go this way and that, and they're just so happy to be out there in the morning sun. Well, that's a picture of saints when they're delivered in the kingdom. And you, you who are saints, will tread down the wicked, for they should be ashes under, ashes under the soles of your feet. In the day that I shall do this, says the Lord. Earlier he had sent, said this. Now mark these words. When I come, I will draw near to you in judgment. This is a very stern... You know, I'm putting my finger out like a stern schoolmaster, but I think God's finger is a little bit more sterner than mine. And this is also the spirit of Christ in judgment. I will be a swift witness against deceivers, their abusers, Against adulterers, they're abusers. Against liars, they're also abusers. And against those who oppress workers, widows, and children. Against those who turn strangers away. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. These men, they should fear God. If they don't know him, well, there's nothing to fear. But for those of us who know God, we think we can get rough at home and get our way do it being rough being angry, being harsh, being profane, being cruel with our words, being putting fear in the hearts of our wives and our children. God says, you should be fearing me. I'm something to be afraid of, and I will deal with you when the time comes. And that's God's message. So the day is coming, that shall burn them up, and on the other hand, you shall go forth as calves in the stall. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go forth and grow up as calves in the stall. Behold, I will send you Elijah. This is the message, and this is, this is where we're going to make the point. So listen up. If, if you're getting a little bit tired, wake up right now and go ahead and listen to this point in the context of what we're saying, because this is the end here. It's the end of the message. And it's the point. It's the bottom line, if you want to call it that. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. It's great for those people who've been serving him and it's dreadful for those people who have been abusive. And he shall turn. This is the work of Christ in the world and this is the work of his administration when you go forth to the nations and become a blessing to them. He shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. In other words... What he is saying here is that the problem, this is the last verse in the Old Testament, the problem with the whole world, the problem that Jesus ultimately came and resolved with his sacrifice and will resolve further fully when he's on the throne of his father David, this problem is that fathers are selfish and children are rebellious. And they're probably rebellious mostly because the fathers are so selfish. And this is the problem with the whole earth. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So I don't mean to sound, to, to sound like I'm yelling at you about this. But I think maybe that point needs to be that way because if you have anger in your bosom, you can remember that anger rests in the bosom of the fools. I have it in mind and I have to work very hard to keep it down. I hate the anger. The anger has to stop. It, it's destructive. It's the thing that causes abuse and it's the problem here that Elijah will correct first in Israel and the rest of us will correct when we bring Christ's righteous law 
to the whole world, into the hearts of men and women who are parents in that day, so that all the families of the earth will be blessed and blessed with peace and blessed with happiness, blessed with joy and love and all those good things that are promised to us in the fullness of God's word. That will be the prevailing tone of this world in the day that this particular problem is resolved.